0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu.
1: Hi, uh, this is Sarah Kibbing, the postdoctoral associate from the uh, Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And today we are speaking with Megan Parker, co founder and director of research for a group called Working Dogs for Conservation. Hey, Megan, thanks for joining us today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. Yeah.
1: Great. Um, Well, we are here to talk a little bit about what your group does, um, and especially what your canine colleagues do. But uh, could you first just give us a little bit of information and background about yourself? Um, So were you a conservationist or a dog lover first?
0: (laughs) Well, I was definitely a dog lover first, although I was lucky to grow up in a family and in a place where I could, um, I don't know, really appreciate conservation as a as a child, so I guess maybe it came hand in hand. I got a, I grew up in Montana and spent a lot of time backpacking and on rivers and lakes. But we always had a dog, and so um, I, I I would have to say I was I was a dog person first. But I was lucky enough to be exposed.
1: How did you get into conservation in an academic or research sense?
0: Well, I I worked on a lot of different projects, and I I got my bachelor's degree in um, science and art and then I did a master's degree with birds of prey and so it it kind of one project as it tends to do sort of leads to another and I ended up doing a PhD in Africa on scent marking behavior and chemistry of African wild dogs which um, taught me a lot and it let me explore the world of how animals communicate with chemistry and how they signal each other without vocalizations or, or visual signals, and it, it really informed a lot of what I had been doing in training dogs, in detection dogs, so using their olfaction. I guess I was studying for my PhD the other end of the spectrum about look, what chemicals animals might leave to give information to another one of their species, um, but also how they collect that information and how from how far away and what that those signals do on a landscape. And so it's very much Really what we do with detection dogs and conservation is um, try to gather as much information as we can from a landscape about what species are there that we're, we're targeting and then learn you know, what the best way to gather that information is.
1: Yeah, so, wow, that's really fascinating research, and um, this maybe answers the question of, um, tell us a little bit about Working Dogs for Conservation. You have alluded to it, of of using dogs, and the title gives us a lot of information, but um, tell us a little bit about the group and how the idea sort of congealed and came together.
0: Well, we are um, a group of conservation biologists who also... um, select, train, and work with detection dogs um, for, for different conservation projects. And some of them are on invasive plants, and some of them are on endangered species in far fung places like Cameroon or China. So it really kind of hasn't mattered what we're looking for. It's the process of, of learning about what we need to look for and how to train a dog on that particular species or risk that's been really fun. We, we got together, it, we formed as an organization in 2000, but we'd worked together since the mid-90s. There were four of us that co-founded the organization, and now we've grown to seven people, um, and we, um, we work dogs, and we try to serve conservation in the best way possible, and often the best way possible is using dogs. To increase sample sizes for things that are really hard for people to find.
1: Yeah. So, so how, how, so this is, I mean, clearly why you use them. But how, how good are the dogs at finding things, and are they, are they better than either humans walking out on the landscape, or even something like satellite remote sensing for some things that we can pick up through satellite?
0: Well, you know, almost invariably they. <laughs> they're better. They're just better <laughs> at all sorts of things. Their ability to, to detect things through their nose is really unsurpassed. So they're detecting things in parts per billion while we're sort of stuck olfactorily in parts per hundred usually, which, you know, that's kind of a hard thing to understand. But it's it, anything that's out there in the landscape whether it's a a wire snare or a tiny plant that you might not capture on a satellite image that is an invasive or native plant. Maybe it's too small. Maybe they're just in such small numbers that they're not really giving an infrared signal. Whatever it is, dogs can not only filter out these chemicals that identify a species or a thing, Specifically, but they can also discriminate among all the other things out there. They're very good at finding the one thing amongst many, many, many similar things. So if we're looking for a subspecies or a certain gender of an animal, the dogs can do that. They, they can become very specific and tell us where one specific thing is. And so when we're looking for plants, whether they're invasive plants or native plants, the dogs are finding small populations and individual plants rather than clumps or larger populations that might be easier to tell from a photograph or a satellite
1: image. Yeah. So are there, are there any things, if, if you go on your website, um, workingdogsforconservation.org, you um, can see sort of the wide variety and the things that you've talked about that the, your dogs uh, can find. And so is there anything, they can find aquatic organisms, they can find plants, they can find pieces of metal. Is there, is there anything that you've yet to not be able to train your dogs? to find by scent
0: yeah no we've had spectacular failures but um (laughs) kind of it's hard always to tease apart what's going on we we worked on an invasive plant called yellow star thistle which is the scourge of a lot of places especially in colorado and it's just a it's just a nasty plant that's taken over some really beautiful rangeland and we worked the dogs in the summertime on this plant. And they did great in training. They could detect the plant from quite a ways away. But when we got to the field, either the plants were senesting, they were, they were resting during their, the hot summer phase of their life cycle, and they were also covered with vines. And the dogs could find them, but barely before you know a human could find them. They didn't really add anything because they weren't smelling them from any appreciable distance. And it may be that the plants were just really in a rest phase, and so were producing very few, you know, like very little odor, I guess. Um, But that was a particularly interesting one where Mm -hmm. the dogs did great in training, but then when we got to the field in real life, you know, conditions, it certainly wasn't um, worth you know, applying the dog's nose to something that people could see by the time we got close enough.
1: Yeah. Wow. So can you tell us a little bit about how you train the dogs to find things by scent and then sort of a corollary to that? Um, do you have one dog for one item or can dogs to sort of hold multiple scents in their head at one time? Well,
0: they do. We, we, have, um, we have a lot of dogs on staff, but each of the dogs, especially the veteran dogs, may have up to or over 20 different odors that wow. they know. So one dog can find many things at one time. So if we're out surveying for carnivore scats, for instance, to get genetic information to determine population size for an area and get fecal DNA we might be doing that for a host of carnivores that might be you know they might be looking for five different carnivore species at the same time or we might be looking for a native plant and an invasive plant like one of my colleagues just did on a a national wildlife refuge in Iowa where there's a really invasive plant and there's a really rare native plant so huh. the dogs were out looking for both and sometimes we just look for one thing uh-huh. or sometimes the one thing we're looking for Like wire snares, we were in Africa looking for wire snares that are having a massive impact. These are illegal snares for poaching, and they're really Mm -hmm. decimating wildlife populations in Africa. But every wire snare is different. Every wire snare is made differently of a different kind of wire, put up by a different guy, used in a different way. And so the dogs were constantly learning about these snares and had to generalize instead of specify that, like, well, all wire out here is worth telling you about. Mm. So it's really the training is different for each individual object, but basically we just, we select dogs that are crazy for a toy, and that is their reward. This toy is the reward and makes it worth doing all of this hard work day in, day out, these long, hot days they really when they find what they're looking for we play with them and that that's their
1: paycheck wow <laughs> If only everyone could could get by with just that and conservation for a paycheck. And <laughs> be so happy. Yeah. Um, so so you've just been talking about, you know, taking your dogs out west looking for yellow star thistle or or out looking for wires in, in areas and conservation lands in Africa. And um it's it's interesting that your work uh, isn't just in the United States and it transcends international boundaries. And one thing I've noticed when I've traveling is that different cultures around the world have very different relationships. With with dogs, and I wonder if there's any stories or thoughts about um, how, when you take the dogs internationally, or even when you take them to places in the United States, um, whether people think of the dogs, because I know I think of a dog as a family member and a pet, but that's not necessarily a very consistent with, with other cultures.
0: You know, that, I have to say, has been the most rewarding part of all that we've done. When I've been able to travel, and we've taken dogs to Cameroon um, and to Myanmar, and um, lots of places in Africa where dogs are definitely not part of any kind of family culture like they are here, you know, in in Western cultures. However, there is something really universally appealing about dogs to people, or and it, it and they pique people's curiosity. So we tend to show up in places where dogs may even be eaten for food or um, like th- you know, people throw rocks at dogs to keep them away from their, their food and from scavenging. And so where dogs can be treated, um, you know, pretty, pretty poorly generally. And yet we show up with these really tend to be kind of large, extremely healthy looking animals that are by our side all the time. And especially children are just fascinated by this. And even though they might be afraid of dogs in their own culture, and they're certainly afraid of these giant canines that we bring in, they're they're more fascinated than they are afraid. And so by watching us pet these dogs, which is strange behavior anyway, mm-hmm. um, for, for them to see, they get curious and come in and pretty soon are wanting to touch and then are mobbing our dogs and wanting to touch them. And often we're able to use that that audience and that curiosity to really talk about conservation and we've been we tend to do demonstrations and give talks where we go and in cameroon we we um we gave a a talk at a, a school for the deaf and talked about how we use dogs to find gorillas that these kids didn't know were in their own backyards like the rarest gorilla on the planet lives in in the mountains behind them and so we got to talk to them about these gorillas that are you know, iconic and incredibly important, and they got it because they got to see these crazy dogs and see these dogs play, and it was really, it was really moving, and even, you know, these really experienced um, biologists who, you know, we worked with in Africa, they were gorilla trackers, and they had no time for us and our dogs, but watching the dogs work, they looked over, and suddenly they realized that these dogs were colleagues and could tell them a tremendous amount of information. And so they got, they were very respectful very quickly and helped us immeasurably in reading the dog's behavior and in moving them up and down cliffs. And so even though they weren't used to being close to dogs physically, these guys were picking up the dogs and playing with them and petting them within a really short period of time because they had so much respect for what the dogs could do. It was um I and like I said, it is it's incredibly gratifying and fascinating to see how dogs communicate something that we can't.
1: Yeah, that these all sound like phenomenal stories. Um I yeah. So one of the reasons that um, I was really interested in, in interviewing you and talking about your dogs is the idea of the work that you guys do with, with invasive plant species. Um, I'm an invasion biologist, and so I, I study the impacts of what these plants do on our native communities and ecosystems. And um I know that one of the biggest challenges, um, both from an academic perspective and then also working out on the land, is, is early detection of, of these invasive species. And as you said, you know, if the plant's not flowering or there's just a couple of them, it becomes very hard to, to sense them. And so um, it seems like this is such a, a great way. To be able to do that, and so could you share maybe some stories of some of the other invasives that you guys have tracked down, or uh, groups that you've worked with on working with invasive plants and using your dogs to sense these? Yeah, small and I have to
0: say, I I think that this this work, especially with plants, is the most incredible work because it's so non-intuitive mm-hmm. to watch a dog find a plant because as a human you know, you look across a a field of plants and everything looks generally the same, or how could that (laughs) possibly give off scent? And we've worked on invasive plants. We've also worked on invasive snails. We're working on invasive mussels right now. And so, and we've worked on invasive insects, um, emerald ash borers in the Midwest, which are also, you know, they do, they give out lots of scent. That's how they communicate. But plants, I'll talk about when plant that we've worked on for the last 4 years. It's right outside Missoula, Montana on this hillside that gets a ton of attention and people hike there all the time. About 20 years ago, it was recognized as a as an area where there was an invasive plant called Dyer's Wode that would come in and was was really changing the grasslands on this beloved mountain and people have been doing weed pulls there for 15 years and kind of keeping the population within this 200 acre area and we started working dogs there um, to see if if dogs could help in identifying not the big flowering plants that people can see easily or these plants when they seed and they distribute lots of seeds over quite a large area when they do go to seed but can we get them when they're small and now that we we've been working the dogs for four years the population of those weeds has shrunk considerably and now it's really looking like eradication is within our grasp when for 15 years or 17 years all they were doing is kind of keeping even just keeping the population at a level and the reason is that not only are the dogs finding the plants before they flower they're finding them as just tiny rosettes underneath other dead plant materials that a human could never see because when the grasses get tall and they start dying at this time of summer and folding over, unbeknownst to anyone. These little dyers would are happy to come up in the late season as little plants, and the dogs are finding them. And also those citizen weed pulls, while doing a good job at keeping the plants down, the dogs kept indicating in places where people had pulled a plant. And it wasn't just the smell, like old smell. It was actually the root material was still alive, so people were not pulling all of the roots. The roots remained alive and were sending up shoots in the late season. So because the dogs kept indicating, we learned something about the natural history of this plant and also that pulling just wasn't enough, that we had to apply some sort of chemical to to get rid of those individual plants. And like I said, now it looks like, you know, within a few years that plant will be eradicated from those 200 acres. And so finding now just the very rare plant in a very young stage is quite heartening and really only the dogs are able to do that.
1: Yeah, that that's fascinating. It's really hard to, you know, when you think of smelling plants, you think of smelling a rose. So so what do you does anyone know does your does your research indicate what actually it is about the plant that the dogs or what the scent is that the dogs are smelling? I wish we knew. You know, <laughs> I can't tell you I can't
0: tell you that for anything. However, Working with plants, it's become quite obvious that plants at different developmental stages smell quite differently, which is fascinating. So when we're training the dogs on Dyer's Wode or on napweed or any invasive species, we train them on young plants, we train them on mature plants, and at every possible stage that we can along the way so that the dogs know that this young plant is the same as a plant that's seeding is the same as a plant that's flowering because they have really different odor signatures, and we've just learned that because of working with the dogs, which is a fascinating botanical question, um, but one that Sadly, the dogs can't really communicate with what, <laughs> <Right. laughs> what it is that they're smelling.
1: Well, there's many there's many PhD dissertations that need to be done to continue yeah. this line of this line of research.
0: Oh, ab- absolutely, especially allelopathic plants that are sending out chemicals to keep other like native plants away. You know, we don't know what the differences are between a plant, an invasive plant that's growing in a non-native versus what it might be putting out in a native area, and so we we do keep coming up with all sorts of questions when we work on a particular species because the dogs tell us more than we ask.
1: Yeah. So, do you have collaborations with uh, university, uh, you know, the University of Montana at Missoula, where you can sort of be feeding these these starter questions to researchers? Will we do on
0: on that particular Dyer's wood plant um, plant? program we are working with montana state university university of montana and the montana native plant society so it's been a great group of collaborators however we do not have like i you know and and we would love to work with you know graduate students and postdocs to explore some of these these chemistry questions that just kind of you look finding the right lab and the right People who are interested in those questions um, hasn't been as easy as we'd hoped, but we we keep looking and putting it out there.
1: Great. Well, if I ever meet anyone at a conference, I will be sure to send them your way. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Um, so with these, it just it seems to me that um, – The fact that these dogs can sniff out insects and plants and things that traditionally we have not been very good at finding in small numbers, it seems like every state park and national park should have a dog on staff uh, sniffing out firewood to make sure it's not carrying emerald ash borer or just checking the premise to make sure— there's not a new couple plants coming in. And um, do you see your group expanding to the point where you could be training dogs to work for other conservation areas or, or government organizations?
0: You know, that is exactly what we think needs to happen um, in just the way you described. It would be fabulous um, if if national parks and national forests, you know, had a dog on staff where they could keep track of um, you know, a population, even of grizzly bears. You know, they do a great job of finding scats and getting, you know, a population estimate without having to radio collar um, as many bears. You get, I mean, you get great information from radio collars as well, but it's a different kind of information. But to keep invasives from coming into areas that we really need to protect um, from invasions, it would be fabulous. We were, we have dogs starting to work at check stations. To keep out this a couple of invasive mussels in Montana that have invaded the Midwest and California, but it would be fabulous because every park and every forest and every grassland has different concerns, and so they need dogs to be looking for different things—both things that are highly important that belong there, and things that could invade and really change the the you know the nature and scope of a protected area. And yeah, we would we would love to train more dogs and put them out there with with uh good handlers
1: yeah are, are there any dangers to having having dogs on conservation lands i know there have been reports of uh dogs can just the scent of a dog could disrupt another top-level predator there's been some work on dogs disrupting breeding birds um, even on leash sometimes in conservation is that something that's come up with your organization and and sort of how do you mitigate that if those are actual conservation threats
0: well, we you know that it's a great question and there are areas where dogs are absolutely not appropriate and around breeding birds, you know, ground nesting birds is one of them. However, our dogs are trained to never harass wildlife of any kind mm-hmm. from chipmunks to birds to domestic animals. So, when our dogs are working, they're really focused just on what they're finding and we move through the landscape with them tend to be pretty quickly Uh, slower on plants and some of the smaller like invertebrates and snails and things like that we tend to linger in areas far longer but you know in in backcountry areas we move through the landscape really quickly our dogs don't harass anything and and wildlife moves away we we, you know our dogs wear bells and we make noise so Mm -hmm. we're kind of we do push wildlife away but just temporarily we do have an impact in, in a very small way, we know, and we would never work in an area where our dogs might have a net negative impact on, you know, any kind of wildlife, or we would we would try to mitigate that risk. Um, and, and our dogs don't ever touch, if it's a live animal or even a sample, our dogs don't actually touch it because we don't want to contaminate that sample. They're just, they see they find it, they point to it with their nose, and they lay down, or they sit and they wait for us to come reward them and collect the information. So they're actually not even touching the samples that we're collecting. Mm -hmm. However, you know, like you said, there are places where their impact would have to be really thought about and possibly, you know, the the risk of having a dog in a place if it was disrupting something would not be worth it, or it wouldn't be worth it during that particular season.
1: Sure, yeah, as with all things in conservation, there's always trade-offs in figuring out the best way, but yeah. sounds like. Um, so when I was um, looking up about your organization and, and also uh, found a couple other organizations in conservation that, that use animals, I found a group that used pigs um, in, in the United Kingdom, and I know down in the southeastern United States, there's a couple groups that are using uh, goat herds to control invasive plants. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you guys have ever thought about expanding to uh, <laughs> non-dogs into other, other mammals or other animals. You
0: know, we we have not yet begun to even tap into the 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 talents of dogs and what we can do with dogs. So I think we're, <laughs> before we branch out, we've got a long way to go. And goats and sheep are great ways of of keeping down invasives in some areas, but they're not selective. And basically, right. we really are interested in in non-invasive, unbiased ways of detecting um species. So you know, there's lots of great non-invasive measures for for looking at stuff, but, you know, if you have put a camera trap up, if a big male comes in, then maybe a female with babies might not come into the same area, and we figure that, well, everything poops out there, so we can find their poop. Right. Or if it's a plant, we're not grazing every single plant, native or non-native. We're actually just finding the selected species of, of, of interest. So we like that selective ability that some of like the goats and the sheep and the pigs don't quite have. And it's just a, a, a huge joy to work with dogs, to be honest. <laughs> so yeah There's oh. nothing funner than that.
1: I bet, yeah, to be able to bring your dog to work every day. <laughs> exactly. Um so so just one one final question. Um back to the dogs again. Uh, what do the dogs do in their spare time? Well,
0: it depends on the dog. Some of our dogs have more spare time than others. Um, some of them you know are at home sleeping on couches. We live with our dogs, so um, we don't have a, a central facility in a kennel. So we get it actually we we know our dogs extremely well. They are part of the family. and sometimes they're out working on different jobs all the time. you know, they're kind of in the being fielded. but when they are home, they're just usually part of the family. They um, they're high energy, crazy dogs, and they usually require more. Um, care and restrictions and exercise than your average dog but they just get to be part of the family you know they they eat good food they sleep (laughs) on a comfortable bed (laughs) they like their time off but they don't like it as much as they love working
1: (laughs) that's great well Megan thank you so much both for interviewing with us today and and also for all of your work in conservation and abroad and it's been a pleasure chatting with you and hearing all about uh, working dogs for conservation Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Great.